This is an ABC podcast. This microphone never makes the sounds I wanted to make. That's a reference for the fans. Uh, well, Nadal is my name. Welcome to the Minefield. Scott Stevens is my co-host. It's a very special edition of the Minefield today. Uh, it's a show I frankly never thought we would do. And then Scott Stevens bowled up and came up with an idea that frankly floored me. I thought, I, I love it. I think it's a terrible idea, but I love it. And I've, I've sort of come round. And this could be, at least in our own hearts, Scott, the most anticipated show of the century. Most anticipated of the century. Yeah. Wow, that's really I mean, it's been a short century, especially as far as Minefield is concerned. True. It's only True. been, what, eight years? Mm. But, um, I mean, I think so. Have you anticipated a show more than this one that you can recall? Oh, you probably have. I, It'd be one of the boring ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get absurdly excited about the most ridiculous things that, you know. What's the most ridiculous show that's excited you? Hmm. I might have to take that question on notice. Do you know, I have a suggestion for one that might have. Mm-hmm. The um, George Orwell versus Aldous Huxley one. That's, on. that's going back to year two, year three. That's B-side. That's back catalogue. Yeah, but mm. I reckon that might have been... I think you were pretty excited about that one. I was, I was pretty excited about that. And it's really funny you bring that up because you've just recently read Neil Postman's... No, I haven't read it. I've recently been given it. Oh, you've recently been given it. And I Well, that's the next it. best thing. Yes. No, I'm about to read it. Mm. And I flicked through it. And as I flicked through it, I was like, oh, my God, this is all Scott's stuff. Yeah, this is what yeah. Scott was saying. It is interesting that the whole contrast between George Orwell and Aldous Huxley, who had the read on the threats that most acutely present themselves in our in our moment, in our culture, in our time. Yeah. My, my read of that predated the first time I read Neil Postman's, but then there's something so luminously, almost transcendently clear about the way that Neil Postman puts the case, about the fact that what really places Western culture in danger is trivia, not censorship. Yeah. There's something about that that I think anticipated the social media age and some of the real temptations that were going to overwhelm mastery media that were far ahead of anything that I think yes, Orwell could have anticipated. As, as I started started flicking through this, I thought, oh, after all this time, I think you might have been right. Okay. But also that means the show was wrong. Because as I recall, we ended up on a compromise, which was that the threat was actually yeah. Huxwellian. Yeah, yeah. I can't which, remember what that means. I just remember that's, probably, that's where we ended up. But I think there's a feedback loop that goes from trivia into its own form of censorship. Because if, uh, if you think about it this way, when public discourse is flattened out to such an extent that certain things are promotable, certain things are marketable, certain things are memeable, certain yeah. things are shareable, then that imposes its own either censorship or self-censorship. Yeah. If this thing isn't going to get up, yes. then what's the point thinking yeah, yeah, it? What's yeah, the yeah. point writing it? So you could say that triviality becomes censorious in its own perverse yes, way. Yes, but that's not quite what all it's not the same at. thing. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. It's not. We, this is highly anticipated for me because this is part of our um, Minefield Not Quite a Book Club thing, which we still don't have a name for. But anyway, we've done uh, in this over the course of the year precisely two, which mm-hmm. <laughs> is pretty slack. We did Succession and then we did Jane Austen's Emma. That's right. Today we go in a very different direction. This was your suggestion. Yep. Everyone I've told, I think, just assumed that this was me mm-hmm. imposing something on you. This was, is where we try to keep our audiences on the back foot. Yeah. Though. You think it was Wally. Yeah, but, but no. it wasn't. But I, yeah. I think in the end, I think it's inspired by you. Well done. Having watched it, I just thought, actually, there's a lot here we could talk about. I don't know if we're going to end up talking about the stuff I think we're going to talk about, but I think there's a lot there. What are we talking about today? Well... Uh, One of the things that we had in mind ever since the beginning of this series, and I I mean, can it really be called a series? It's just stuff we wanted to talk about at certain intervals during the year. Yeah. But we always wanted to do a variety of objects. So doing a television show, they didn't have an overly long run. We were thinking at some stage about maybe West Wing, maybe Seinfeld. That's just too much. We wanted something. Don't say that because one day we'll do it. We actually will do Seinfeld, there's no doubt. Uh, But we wanted something that was going to be self-contained, that was going to be discussable, that was going to be digestible within a short period of time, but something that demands a degree of seriousness on the part of its audience. In other words, it wants to be taken seriously. It doesn't want to just be transitory and go away. There's a lot of television that's meant to be enjoyable, but something more like popcorn. You enjoy it for a moment, and it doesn't really have the web of literary references or the degree of writing that would elevate it to the point where it can be considered an aesthetic object. And Succession, I think, was just such a show. So Emma's obvious. Emma's obvious. But in some ways, Emma's disappointingly obvious for this series. I remember when you suggested it, I thought, the problem with this is, of course you'd do something like that. The only saving grace is it wasn't Pride and Prejudice. But apart from that, it's like, well, of course you did. Pride and Prejudice 
just Jane Austen slumming it. I, I think that's a that's a morally substandard novel. Okay, but Emma a is a masterpiece. Sure, yeah, sure. But anyway, but today. Yeah, okay, go on. Yes. I mean, this is something else. This does not fit the description you just gave. I don't yes, think. it does. Oh, okay. Yes, it does. So each one of the objects that we wanted to choose, we wanted it to be a performance. We want it to be something whose appreciation didn't rely on a certain degree of background knowledge. Mm-hmm. In other words, it didn't. we didn't want it to be something esoteric. Oh, you enjoy that, but you, you don't know what's really going on here. So we want something that's going to be intelligible on the surface of things. Something that has an aesthetic integrity. Something that is arresting. Something that is enduring. And yet, for all those reasons, something whose, and this is my little gambit here, every attempt to grasp it ends up being somehow subtly elusive. Okay. Every time you think you have it, there's something about it that slips through your fingers. That's interesting. So we're talking about an event on the 13th of July, 1985. It's Queen's set mm-hmm. at Live Aid. Now, there are various things that commend itself, I think, about this particular performance. Firstly, the event, Live Aid, is a morally overdetermined, or we could say a morally inflected event. There's a moral rationale for this 16-hour, 75-act event. And I would say the first of its kind. Certainly the first I can remember. I was little at the time. Yeah. I can't remember a sort of, you know, concerted global event, concerted global effort that brings together the biggest names in popular culture, or at least in music, for a particular cause in quite this way. Yeah, although Live Aid did have important predecessors. It didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't simply a figment of Mm. Bob Geldof's imagination. There are two interesting precursors from the previous 12 months. The first was uh, an initiative by Bob Geldof of Boomtown Rats and Midge Ure, I think, of um, Ultravox. They were the ones who composed and who organized uh, Do They Know It's Christmas the previous year. It's not the same thing. Okay, but it was the same idea. And it was inspired by the same catastrophe, namely the ongoing unfolding famine that had been ravaging Ethiopia for the previous three years. Yeah, but but releasing a song that gathered together all of the biggest artists in the one studio and then branding those artists together by a single name, namely Band-Aid, in order to raise funds. I'm just saying the germ of the idea. Yes, but that's not the same as this idea. No, it wasn't. And so there had been nothing like this. No, but then it's just worth pointing out that two months later, Quincy Jones and Michael O'Martin did the same thing with We Are the World. Mm. Uh, I thought that was part of this. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. In my memory, that was like the song of Live Aid. Yes. I didn't know that. So it was inspired by it. Yeah. And it was for the same cause, and it was to raise money for the same thing, but it had its own very... So, you know, the British version was Band-Aid. This is USA for Ethiopia. So there's something a little bit more parochial, a little bit more American-centric. But this Live Aid, organized over the span of a feverish three months, Mm. and bringing together everyone... In multiple countries. Multiple countries. At the same time. At the same time for a global televised event. You're absolutely right. This was different. And it was an appointment. Go on. So I would have been in grade one and I have vivid memories of my brother with whom I just watched the live ad set okay. in preparation for this. I was at his house. I said, this is coming up. I've got to watch this. Do you want to watch it with me? He said, absolutely. Nice. I sat down and watched it. And it's one of the main reasons, actually, I became such a big fan of Queen. Hmm. But I have vivid memories of him, and he remembers vividly as well, we're talking about this on the weekend, um, of him telling me, this band's on at that time, we have to make sure we're home, mm. sit down. get the-. So for us, the big ones were Queen, mm. Dire Straits. And Dire Straits was immediately before Queen. No, Status Quo was immediately before Queen on that stage. Dire Straits was on a different stage, I think. Oh, really? Or maybe they weren't, but okay. they, they were a slightly different time. I rem- I've got a f- strange memory of In Excess because mm-hmm. there was an Australian version yep. of all this as well. So, in other words, uh, it was the pop culture equivalent of having conference schedules with sessions in different rooms or whatever and plenary sessions <laughs> and the like. And that? you had your timetable and you figured out where you needed to be when. Yeah. It was also simulcast on radio, I'm sure. Yes. So it was like the, it was the event and the nature of it as an appointment is something I've never 
ever experienced since in the world of music. Mm. I mean, you have appointments in the sense of I am going to this concert or there was a period where concerts on television was quite popular, like on a Friday night they'd show a Billy Joel concert. Is that right? Yeah, Mm. yeah. That would happen for a bit. Mm. There was simulcast. I remember Dire Straits played in Sydney and that was simulcast on one of the radio stations as well as on TV. So there were those moments, but nothing, nothing remotely like this. It was the closest music ever gets to like a grand final Mm. or something where everyone... It didn't matter who you were, you had an interest Mm. and you were going to be part of this. So there are a number of interesting things you're already flagging. Number one is the fact that this was so precisely scheduled. I mean, it was scheduled down to the minute. Mm. So the degree of rehearsing the technical proficiency that had to go into this was critical. We should also say that a big part of Queen's agreement to take part in it was their ability to set the time when they wanted to perform. It was a time that was going to maximize U.S. audiences, and it was a time that was early enough in the evening but late enough in the afternoon that you would kind of catch that catch that magical window. Yeah. So not quite night. So 6.43, I think it, it was. was. And not quite yes. daylight either. In the summer. There's, in something, the summer. there's something else going on here, though, that's interesting. Mm. And that's that the audience is part of the spectacle. Mm-hmm. So that even if you're watching it on screens, the audience plays the function of an actor, of an agent in it. The audience is something that you enjoy, hence the constant shots from the audience to the stage, but also those really subtle 75-degree angle shots where you're not quite on the stage, you're not quite off the stage. Side stage, yeah. Side stage, you can see what's going on, but you can see the audience at the same time. And then there's remarkable moments where where Freddie in particular is directly appealing to the camera that's moving around on the stage with him, Mm. something that happens quite kind of ludicrously uh, during Hammer to Fall. But importantly, no one in the stadium, and this was a stadium, this was Mm. Wembley Stadium, no one in the stadium can see that. Mm, that's right. So this is a thing to remember for in our age where stadium concerts are a thing. They're hugely produced. Mm. There are screens everywhere. You get to see everything. This is an enormous stadium made for football matches, just full with countless people. I don't even know how many people were there in the end. It's an enormous number mm. of people. And all they have is four little people on mm, right. a distant stage. And so this is the remarkable thing about the performance, but also about what Freddie's task is as the front man is to reach the back row of that without any kind of mediated assistance. Reaching the world is different because that's via television, which is its own thing, by the way. Yes, that's that's right. And probably not an overly developed skill at that Mm. point for a lot of Mm. people. Mm. So he's doing that, but it has to work in the place. Mm. That's right. And he's doing it without really any of the assistance that we would immediately think you would rely on. Yes. And even though there is that moment where I think he interacts deliberately, importantly, with the camera in order to make fun of the camera. Mm. That's the important thing. In order Mm. to make fun of the camera that's moving around with him, he is entirely present. He is entirely present. The full, heaving, erotic masculinity (laughs) on the stage is vital and it's mesmerizing. Can I just mention one other thing, though, before we get into the substance of the performance itself? There There were negotiations to be had in order to get Queen to take part in Live Aid. Freddie Mercury was not part of Band-Aid. He did not sing to his enormous credit. He did not sing on the album, Do They Know It's Christmas, which remains one of the most morally appalling songs I think ever written, and that's saying something. Um, He did not take part of it because he was... That's harsh. There have been some pretty morally appalling songs. Yeah, but that one, as a bit of mass-marketed tat, was just awful. (laughs) Anyway, anyway. I think this might be one of those Scott Stevens overstatements. Oh, really? Okay, okay. Uh, That and everything that Guns N' Roses does, yeah. Anyway. Oh, God. Speaking of of mass-marketed tat. (laughs) uh, I mean, the reason he didn't take part wasn't because of any boycott or any principal disagreement. He wanted to, apparently, uh, but they were involved in their The Works tour. Which brings us to the other scandal that was hanging over the group, and that's the fact that during 1984, they had performed nine songs in South Africa Mm. during the time that the cultural boycott was in place. They were reprimanded by the UN. They were reprimanded by the UK Musicians uh, Union Association. So there was a cloud, and for an extended period of time, there was a doubt whether Queen would or would not participate Mm. in the festival. On the South Africa thing, I should point out, this is now from memory. Yeah. this is a thing they regret, and Brian May's spoken about it. Brian May, the guitarist. Mm. But one of the things he, I'm almost certainly, said about it was he wasn't aware it was a segregated crowd. Mm. I know that doesn't get around the boycott issue. That's right. But for context, he had this understanding that there was going to be some kind of mixed crowd, mm. and 
that informs their mm. position. I think they might have also... Did they get into trouble playing in Argentina? Yes, they did. Similar sort of thing. So Queen was not a band you would say... They were, they were not you 2 No, that's right. I'm glad you're saying this. This was not a, a band for whom human rights considerations were foremost. Yes. Even though I could imagine for someone like Brian May, and I think definitely for someone like Brian May, he would be probably more cognizant and sensitive yes. to that sort of thing than probably most people in the rock firmament. Yep. Um, which you can see in the songs that he's written. Yes, yes. Which we can come to. Yeah, soon. yeah, we possibly can. Nice. Yeah. But as a band, they weren't. And no. the reason I previously said I'm is not it, sure... Is it possible to say that they were assiduously apolitical? Not anti-political. Yeah. But they were apolitical as a matter of, not of principle, but almost as, a, an, as an aesthetic decision. Kind of, because there were songs that, that had sort of political elements, right? Even in a sort of schmaltzy... Like Back to the Humans. Uh, yeah, Machines, Back, yeah. To, Back to Humans, yeah, which is on the works. Yep. Or uh, Is This the World We Created, also on the works. We're going to come to that, uh, yes. Not in this set. Um, but later at Live Aid. Uh, they reprised it. Not at Live Aid. Yes, they did. Later that evening. Oh, later yes, that evening. Did. Oh, yes, sorry, I think yes, you in this set. But not as part of the set. Not as part of the set. There are those sort of odd songs. I mean, Brian May writes uh, that song, White Man, on, um, on A Day at the Races, which is effectively a critique of colonisation and dispossession yep. in its way, but they do it in a fairly surface way. Hmm. And the, the reason I said earlier in the show that I don't think this fits the description of the objects for our Not Quite a Book Club that you set out is, you said this, these are works that demand to be taken seriously. Hmm. The thing that defines Freddie Mercury for me, contra Brian May, the thing that defines Freddie Mercury for me is his refusal to be taken seriously, his determination to be flippant even when the work is actually incredibly sophisticated. Mm. So he would talk endlessly about, not en endlessly is too strong, because he actually didn't speak very much. Mm, that's right. But when he did interviews, he would very frequently speak about how disposable this was. Mm. So apolitical, I don't know if they were determinedly apolitical so much as adopting Freddie's aesthetic of, oh, this is, this, this is all just fluff. Mm. Right? It's, it's all disposable, darling. But it was more, we want to play, we just want to play music that people enjoy. Yeah. That, if you like, is the aesthetic position. Yes. Mm. Even though they start in that sort of prog slash glam rock world. Yep. But even that, it's a lot about, you know, mythical things and fairies and kings and queens and, you know, Scar describing motion. paintings yeah. and all this sort of stuff. So they, they kind of begin in that world. But yeah, but, but that's because the way Freddie talks about his music, even that's clear, he was incredibly serious about it mm. as an artist and a composer and a performer. But the way he talks about his music is as something that does not matter. Mm. That's his starting position. So what I find interesting is the meeting of these two things. Uh, an artist that wants not to matter mm. Mm. <laughs> in an event mm. that very self-consciously matters. Mm. And there's something in the meeting point of that. Fabulous. That is fascinating, but also I think could only have happened in 1985. That's right. Or around that time. You could never have gotten this since. All right. As a result... So, yeah, can you say why? Why 1985? Oh, well, I don't mean to be specific to 85 so much as that just Mid, that broad Mid-1980s. Why, why that period? Because there is something about that era that is sunny, that is optimistic, that is quite comfortable with naivety. Just coming to the end of the Cold War? Yeah, that's true. And so... Not quite... I mean, you've got a little bit of the Reagan-Thatcherite optimism. Mm -hmm. You've got a little bit of the assertive chest-beating... Confidence of the West. Yep. You have a little bit of the rolling back of the East. And what you don't have is a kind of what we might call cultural cringe. Yeah, true. But, but more than that, I suspect, is a kind of reflex without end and perhaps without an end deconstruction of one's own culture. Yeah, all right. So by the time Queen take the stage, they are taking the stage before a crowd that is deliriously happy to be there. Mm feeling good about life, feeling good about themselves, but also in a way that is not permitted anymore, feeling good about the good they are doing. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. That's right. This is, this is the form of ethical enjoyment. Yeah. Where by doing something that makes them deliriously happy, by doing something that is glorious by any standard of measurement, mm. they are also doing something for the good of the world. Yes. Mm. Now, is this the bit where we go to the performance or do you want to say anything else? Because I have an observation about the performance in that context, but I don't want to preempt. I just want to say, before we actually get into the performance itself, 
No. You know what? I think the point is best made in the context of the performance. Okay. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Do you want to start or you want me to start? You start. I'll start. So I come to this as a Queen fan mm. who's listened to everything, who has every album, who's listened to their live performances as released as albums mm-hmm. many, many times, who in a way is far more familiar with their other live performances than with Live Aid mm. because in the same way as Queen fans don't really like Hardcore Queen fans, don't listen to greatest hits because why would you? Mm. You listen to the albums. So in that way, Live Aid was just, ah, it's kind of like the greatest hits of a Queen show. For real fans, by the way, for real fans of a band, getting greatest hits, that's like following an AFL team just in the season when they're coming on top of the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you you treated with nothing but disdain. Turning on for the finals. But you know what? We still buy greatest hits because you need to have the collection complete. Oh, you really? Oh, yeah, I've got greatest hits. And two. Yeah. Okay. Do I have three? I don't know. Anyway, but what's interesting is the ways in which this differs from a Queen concert. Mm. In a Queen concert, all the elements that are in this set are elements that exist in a Queen concert. Mm. They're going to play Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. They're going to play all these songs. Mm. The crowd participation will be there. Mm. The bit where Freddie sings and they sing back, they've been doing that. That's forever, right. Right? Freddie would do it usually in a very declaratory way. At some point in the set, he would just walk up and say, you are now going to sing, and then they would have to, right. Mm-hmm. And the call and response, he was incredible at that. Mm. Um, even the performance in a stadium, not new. Queen mm. was That's right. probably unique, actually, among bands. I don't know if anyone else had done it. If anyone else had done it, there were very few examples. Mm. For whom this was just... Small beer. They, you know, they they played, what did they set the record in Montreal in 81 or something for playing in front of 110,000 people, something of that order. It was ridiculous. They later played, I think before Live Aid, I think, maybe it was after. But in this sort of era, they played that incredible concert in Brazil in front of Mm. 250,000. That's right. right. 250,000 people Mm. without screens, Mm. without television. So they'd done this. It's part of the reason that they're, sound was so incredible and they sounded better than everybody else in the mm-hmm. stadium because their sound guys knew how to mix for a stadium. They'd mm-hmm. had a lot of practice at this. So they'd done stadiums before and Brian May freely admits this was a huge advantage mm-hmm. that they had. But anyway, how does it differ from a Queen concert? It differs because it is so tightly trimmed. That's right. The songs themselves The songs are, are curtailed. Yes. A lot of them are. Uh, three of them. It begins... With Bohemian Rhapsody, which is normally saved for somewhere about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the show. Mm. It ends with We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions, which is the way you would end, so mm. that's that's conventional. It doesn't play God Save the Queen at the end, which they would normally do. In between time... Sorry, and the other thing I noticed, and this is, I guess, getting very finicky, because it was only a 22-minute set, or 20-minute set, roughly, Freddie doesn't cheat on any of the notes. Mm. He goes for all the high notes that in live concert when he's out there for three hours, he'll often find a lower harmony mm. for. Except at the very end. Uh, I'd, even there, I think... There are two points where his voice breaks. And oh, no, that happens all the time because oh, it's okay. just so... It, because it's He's strenuous. going yeah, in the yeah, red zone from the yeah, very beginning. Right. But my point is, it is high octane from the very beginning mm, to the right. end. But not in... High octane is probably not the right word because he begins sitting at a piano playing a ballad. Right? just so happens he opens with the greatest song of all time mm, and not many bands have that option. Mm. But if I were to say there is one ethic, or ethic's not the right word, one organising principle that ties their set to the event, it is that the whole thing is centred around participation. Yes, excellent. Freddie comes out, or the whole band comes out. Freddie's- I love that we haven't talked about this beforehand. Yeah, yeah. No, I no, love no. this. So Freddie sits there and he plays and he starts playing probably a B-flat chord because he's opening with Bohemian Rhapsody, right? He just plays up the piano to, he makes an adjustment. Mm-hmm. And then he just starts playing. All he needs to do is start playing those, that first B-flat major chord. There's from immediate recognition. Everyone immediately gets yeah. it. Because it's the greatest song of all time and at that point it's, what, 10 years old. Mm, that's right. Everyone knows it. And, importantly, everyone loves to sing it. Mm. So he's singing, but he doesn't actually need to be. They're carrying it. Mm. So immediately you have however many thousand people there, all sing Queen fans, non-Queen fans. They're not his crowd, by the way. Mm. Some are, but a lot aren't. So participation is there from the very beginning. Mm. They then go into what, Radio Gaga? Yes. Which is the single of the time. Yes. Which has this film clip. Yes, thank that you. That people know. Yes. And apart from the bits that use an old film, 
There's Fritz the, Lang's Metropolis. Yes. There is the gesture of the clapping hands and then up, the arms in the saluting. air, and then the, the clapping in the chorus mm. in line with the snare, basically. Mm. Right? Participatory. Then from there they go, does Freddie sing at that point? Or they go to Hammer to Fall? No, then they go AO, the call yeah. response. And then so Hammer immediately now. That's right. So you've sung along to Bohemian Which Rhapsody. Which is the instantiation of participation. Right. Yes. So you've sung along to Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. You've then done the hand gestures with Radio Gaga, which, by the way, the band isn't asking them to do. This That's is what right. I noticed. It's not like what you normally get at a concert where the, the band the... stands up and the lead guy's clapping in a really exaggerated yes, way. as they to... do on the video clip, yes. where they've abandoned their instruments and then the people effectively are the instruments. The point is here, Freddie doesn't need to ask them to do Thank a thing. Brilliant, Willie. God. They know what to do hmm. and they just do it. And yep. so they are... You're, Absolutely right to talk about the importance of the shots of the crowd. Because mm. they are, to use the cliche, the fifth member of the group. Mm. <laughs> they are so central. I can't believe you said that. To yeah, what's but, going but, still, but it's yeah, true. Right? You're kind of right, yeah. In some ways, they're the first member of the group. Yep. And then, so Freddie sings. Then Hammer to Fall is probably the most conventional part of the set. Okay, but... Because it's just... There's so many things I want to say about this. So, okay, well, you can inter- intervene. So, so just quick, I mean, there are a couple of things I just want to take a couple of to Hammer to sure. Fall is tricky because it is the most... Politically overdetermined of the song, of, of the songs. It's the most instrumentally heavy of the songs. Uh, Brian May's kind of split guitar solo is the stuff that dreams are made. I, I, yeah, I mean, you know, it's yes. it, it's second, I think, to Brighton Rock. But anyway, it's very, very good. But it's also their least known song At, in that set. In that set, but it's off their recent album. Yes, it is. But it is the performance. It is the one that demands the least amount of participation. And mm. it's the one that, if you like, occupies that central space with the most, I think, politically salient message of any of the songs in the mm. set, which is why it then goes to Crazy Little Thing Called Love, which is fluff. It begins with a piece of uh, brazen flattery. This song is dedicated to all the beautiful people, mm. which falls flat. Which is all of you. <laughs> yes, but in that little interval. Yeah. After the beautiful people, yeah. there's that kind of little, oh, are we supposed to clap? To yeah. are we supposed to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is all of you, thank <clears throat> you for being I'm making this a wonderful occasion, mm. which immediately brings them to life. And it's the most easily digestible of the songs. And it's a song which is an attempt at kind of brazen flattery of the crowd. But it's also just a fun song. It's just a fun song. Now, take a step back for a moment, mm. though. It seems to me that if we talk about live performances... Mm. There are three types of live performances, or there are three types of bands mm-hmm. that uh, accommodate themselves to three different ethics. There is the band that is defined by defiance. Yep. So I would say Bob Dylan. I mean, two of my favorite concerts ever are the 1965 uh, Manchester Free Trade Hall and the Royal Albert Hall, mm. where he plays the songs that people know and love but says, it used to go like that, and now it goes like this, <laughs> yeah. and then blows them away, accompanied by booze and everything else. Mm. This is That's the, a different kind of defiance. But yeah. Yes, but this is, the, this is the, the singer who says, you need to reach for it. You need to. Yeah. I'm not going to pander to you. Yeah, yeah. I think Pearl Jam actually does something of the same. Mm. They'll do some of their hits, but then they'll pull out a deep, deep, deep B-side, mm. uh, and then they'll reward their audience by playing something good at the end, or if they're not Fussed by their audience, they'll play a song called Indifference, right. which is their kind of... Yeah, yeah. So there's Defiance, which is saying, we are not pandering to you need to meet yeah. us. Or Roger Waters, who builds a wall. <laughs> I was wondering about that. I was wondering if you would actually count Pink I don't know Floyd if it's defiant on it. I don't think so, because I would say that Pink Floyd is more the second class, yep. which is obedience. To what? To the person on the stage. Okay. So we will tell you what to do, and you will do what we tell you. Well, that's kind of what... They were critiquing in the wall, though. Yes, but I think that U2, that's what U2 fundamentally mm-hmm. is. I think if you've ever watched a Beyonce concert, right. Beyonce is about obedience. Mm-hmm. But then there's the final model, which is seduction. Now, you described it as participation, but I'm not sure if it's... In t- I mean, it is participation, but it is seduction. And Freddie's presence on the stage, his use of the sawn-off microphone stand as a kind of phallic object... His sexual titillation of the camera, the way that he inhabits the entire, plus what he wears. There's the saintly white Mm. with the devilish black armband. There's the constant bodily gestures and 
prancing before the crowd, the making fun of the camera, and then inviting them in on, on the joke. There's all of that that doesn't demand that they do anything, but instead invites them closer and closer mm. and closer. And that's, I think, is, is what's so interesting about the use then of Radio Gaga, which was, you're right, they didn't demand that the audience do, every, do anything. They didn't even suggest it. They didn't even suggest it. And there wasn't the command as there is in the film clip which is standing in front of a group of people doing mm. what, frankly, look like kind of almost tyrannical salutes. Mm. Instead, it's pure spontaneity. So I think there's something about seduction as an aesthetic strategy mm. that is fascinating about the entire performance. But there's another way, I think, of thinking about the way that seduction plays a role in the organization of the entire set. Beginning with Bohemian Rhapsody, the dominant pronoun is I. By the end, yes, you have I in We Are the Champions. No, but it's we. But it's we. We were Rocky and we are the champions. That's right. Yeah. And then there's the line, I see this as a challenge before the whole human race mm. and we are not going but to I'll lose. Never, well, I'll never lose. And I'll never lose. Yes. Mm. And then we are the champions. Yeah. So I think that arc, which begins with the singularity of the performer, the singularity of Freddie Mercury himself, and mm. that reaches that apogee with the we. I think there's something about that, the kind of inviting into a common agency. There is one other way, incidentally, to structure the set list, to make it intelligible. They begin with their oldest song. Mm. Uh, so the dates of the songs roughly go 1975, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, 1984. The new album, yep. Radio Gaga, 1984, Hammer to Fall, 1980, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, We Were Rocky, 1977, We Are the Champions. So you begin old, New, new, a little bit older, and then old again. Mm. So there's the there's the kind of the beginning out with what is absolutely known. There's the coming in, which I think means that Hammer to Fall, which is about mortality. Mm. At a time of um, concern over nuclear proliferation. And That's all right. That sort of stuff. Yeah. So I think there's something about that, bringing people in towards Hammer to Fall and then panning back out again with this message of defiance, yep. you could say, of defiant determination. It, there, it seems to me that they accommodated themselves quite specifically to the moral demands of the moment. The reason I go for participation instead is when you end, with, of seduction. When you end with We Were Rocky and We Are the Champions, they, those are participatory songs. Mm. The idea of those songs was this is what the audience would want. Mm. In fact, it was Brian May and Freddie Mercury basically writing to the same idea and they yeah. came up with different responses. Yeah, well, what what is I, interesting though, Freddie begins at the piano, Freddie ends, ends at the, the piano. piano. Yeah. I go also with participation because the whole event was about participation. That's right. You participate to relieve the hunger of people. Mm. This is you. Your agency, your contribution. Anyway, we need to get the guest yeah, in because we've gotten far too excited. It was tricky finding a guest for this one, but we're deliriously excited that we could get Shane Homan. He's the head of School of Film, Media and Journalism at Monash University. Uh, Shane, why don't you just tell... Welcome to the Minefield, by Thank the you. way. Thanks for joining mm -hmm. us. Um, why would we be particularly excited to have you on the show? <laughs> uh, yeah, so in 1985, I was 20 years old playing... Um, drums in various cover bands in Sydney. And I, I should say, doing a few Queen numbers. So I'm quite familiar with Roger Taylor's work behind the drums. But also I do music industry and music policy work at Monash University. Um, I've, so I've had a lifelong career, if you like, of merging my, my drumming instincts and band instincts into fashioning a job out of it, which right. isn't, isn't too bad. Yeah. yeah, so when you get the database and you type in popular culture academics who have played Roger Taylor right, only one comes out yes. on stage, you get Shane. Okay, yes. <laughs> you. Okay, yes, I'm a dodo. Okay. So, um, but what struck me watching it in 85 at the time when I was actually playing in cover bands where you have to do the Pantheon, you have to do the greatest hits um, to keep people on the dance floor, it struck me, you know, Geldof's original premise was it's got to be a global jukebox. Mm. Um, he wanted people to do the hits. He put that specifically to each, each of the artists. And what seemed to me watching at the time, I remember thinking, yes, but it's Geldof's particular take on the Pantheon. It's the 60s and 70s stars. He got criticised for not having more female performers That's on right. the bill. He got criticised for not having enough colour on the bill. Mm. But I'm interested, I mean, while you talked about participation, I'm interested in the fact that um, Queen were very different. If you look at someone like Elvis Costello on the day, he rocked up with just a guitar, didn't have his band, the Imposters, with him. Walked out of stage and said, I want to do an old northern folk song and started just doing himself, accompanied by himself on guitar, doing All You Need Is Love. Now, that's a different kind of audience participation. The audience got right into it. They sang along every word. Mm. So 
Elvis himself is, of course, from Liverpool, so it worked quite well. But I think other bands didn't didn't fit the brief, or they didn't actually read the brief. Adam Ant decided, for reasons only known to Adam Ant, to do three new songs. Hmm. Brian Ferry refused to do Roxy Music um, hits. So I think one of the specialities about Queen here is that they read the brief and said, we will deliver. We will not waste an, an inch of time, a moment of time. When we're on, we're on. We're going to get a flat chat for 22 minutes. So I think that idea of participation is spot on. Um, but also I think I think we have to think here about Freddie melding his operatic flourishes with rock cliches. Mm. We can't escape the fact it's full of rock cliches. Everything is big. Everything is enormous. The drums are big. The guitars are big. Brian May distorts beyond 11, distorts to 22. Um, the wall of amplifiers. It, yes. I mean, those Vox AC30s, yes. they're just so big. Yes. So I think they, they don't run away from the fact, yes, yes, we know it's a cliche, but we revel in the cliche. We love the cliche. And that actually helps when you're at Wembley Stadium. So, you know, when someone like Elvis Costello tries to be do a nuanced sing-along, yes, it works to a certain extent, but it, it won't work 100% at Wembley Stadium. You need something bigger. And also watching again for the first time in many, many years, I was struck by the fact that Freddie and the band want to show that stadium rock is hard work. Mm-hmm. That you constantly, it's, it's a physical performance. Mm. You sweat profusely. And we saw that when, in the close-up shots of Freddie and particularly Brian May. But the whole thing about it's, it's hard work. We're working really hard, people, for your benefit. And trying to cover an entire stage of that size and reach Wembley Stadium to the back, as Wiley said before. It's interesting the fact that Springsteen refused to do that. He was tired. He said he'd come off the road after a long tour, refused to do it, but he bequeathed his PA. Um, he bequeathed the PA to to the day. I think we have to talk about the fact that that day is also about showcasing technology. Hmm. We've got PAs that can actually fill a, a stadium that size now. We've got... And the simulcasting. It's not often talked about the fact that both at Philadelphia and London, both sides had shots of the other of the other's concerts. Mm. So there's that invitation to the audience of don't just enjoy the day, the physical here and now in, in London. Look what we're doing in Philadelphia. Isn't it amazing? The whole mythology about Phil Collins jumping onto a Concord and playing a disastrous set with um, Led Zeppelin, mm. which both both camps have been trying to live down ever since. Um, but <laughs> They've done all right. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, look, look, I think Phil Collins is an amazing drummer, but no, Jimmy Page is not... Mm. Does not speak well of that of that day, mm. nor does Robert Plant. But I think that whole simulcasting. I think we can't get away from the fact that the global jukebox idea. That I think Waleed's right. That was the first time it was implemented, the first time it was envisaged, and that the audiences were invited to think about themselves as a global audience for the first time. Mm. Mm. Can I just pick up here though? Mm. This is fascinating. You could say, ethically speaking, if a band simply stuck to the brief. If they simply played their biggest hits, got people tuning in, got people enjoying it, got people singing along, then they were doing, quote unquote, the right thing. If the right Mm. thing is raising roughly 127 million Mm. for Ethiopian famine relief. So you could say that simply by doing their best, their biggest, they would be meeting the brief. It does strike me, though, that there were bigger songs that Queen could have done. Oh, definitely. Okay. So, Mm. well... Except, okay, you would have to ask the question bigger at what point in time. It's worth remembering, Bohemian Rhapsodies, that speaks for itself. Of course. We are the champions, we were rocky, that mm-hmm. speaks for Radio Gaga at that time, Radio Gaga was big. matched Bohemian Rhapsody for number one. Yeah. It was in 19 countries. So every, every song on the list is either number one or two, except for Hammond of Four. That's right. Which is the new one. Yes. Yep. So well, I think the reason they go with Hammond of Four is because it's just such a no-brainer rock out but that they only reached 13, but the rest are either one or two. Mm. Yeah. Like, what, what what would you have had them play? I mean, see, the oh. other thing is, bear in mind the songs that work live. So you, you could, for example, play Don't Stop Me Now. That's the one I was going to mention. Yeah. And I, it's funny, I had a chat to a friend of mine about this in the lead up to this, and he made a really good observation, which I adopt, which is that fantastic song, not as great live. Okay. I was going to say it's tone deaf. For that kind of event, a song like I'm Having a Good Time, I'm Having a Ball, is tone deaf I reckon, to some extent. I reckon it could have gotten away. To the event. Okay, but they didn't, and that's the point. So They, they could have done somebody They to begin love. with a melancholy other. note with Bohemian Rhapsody. 
sometimes I, what, I wish I'd never been born at all, mm. is the way that it ends before going into Radio Gaga. There is already something constrained about the way that they choose the songs. It begins with a melancholy note. There's the presence of death in Hammer to Fall. Mm. There is something defiant in the face of whatever it is you want to say, the source of the melancholy, mm. the problem of death. At the very end, there are the moments of levity and lightness, but even something like Radio Gaga. It's a nostalgic song mm -hmm. for Radio's Better Days. It's a hopeful song about Radio's Better Days to come. It's a criticism of television. It's a criticism of television. But, so uh, yeah. so there's, there's all sorts of things that's going on here with Queen's precise choice, a kind of accommodation of the best songs that they could do at that particular moment, but in a way that accorded with the tone the underlying purpose of the event. Yeah, but I have a bit. I have a bit of a problem with retrofitting purpose to the to the choices. I think you know. Okay, you, you can overread lyrics in some of those songs, but I think there's a lot of retrofitting since saying you know this song represented X and Y yeah, on the day yeah. when it clearly wasn't written in, no. in that context. Of course not. No, but the choice, I'm not the choice happens that in that context, though, yeah. doesn't it? The, cho the choice of the set list does oh, yeah, happen yeah. in that context. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean. The one they didn't go with, which they would have been obvious, was "Is this the world we created?" Yes. Mm. Now, now that's it. I mean, is this the world we created? I mean, not only is there the reference buried in it to the United States' 1983 invasion of Granada, mm. is this the world we invaded mm. uh, against the law? So there is the political overdetermination. Now, it's interesting that they did not include it in the set list, but Brian May and Freddie Mercury did reprise it later on in a much more subdued, just the two of them on the stage, all the lights down, both of them in purely white. Which is the way they do it in the concerts. Okay, the okay. So I think I think both of you are right. Having a subdued, slower song would have misread the moment yep. at exactly the time when you needed to draw everybody in, where you needed the eroticism of that connection. But I still can't help but feel, I mean, death hangs over this set list. And this is what I'll never forgive the movie Bohemian Rhapsody for doing, kind of imposing upon Freddie the knowledge of his own mortality. Mm. That's so obviously not going on. He is vital mm. in this set list. And it's factually correct. And it's factually he incorrect. He had no idea he had AIDS at that point. In fact, we don't even know if he did have AIDS at that point. That's right. Mm. So why then does death at the beginning with Bohemian Rhapsody, death in Harrow to Fall, defiance towards the end? It just seems to me that these are interesting moments that rise to a kind of moral purpose. The film's also false in that they infer that they'd had a, a fellow period, they they hadn't seen each other for a while, mm. but they'd just come off a tour. That's why they were so good mm. on Live Aid. They'd literally come off the tour. So they were, they were match fit, they were roadworthy, but the, the film implies that they had a long layoff and then came back for Live Aid, which is false. They, they had come off, though, their most scandalous album, mm. which was Hot Space, mm. which is known amongst people, well, it's not known amongst people. <laughs> it has no. under pressure on it. And then it has a bunch of funk type tracks that was Freddie forcing the band to play music they didn't want to play. Mm. And it failed spectacularly. That, it seems to me, is the one missed opportunity. They should have done under pressure with David Bowie. Oh, I mean, that is one of the greatest yeah. of their songs. There's an argument, but they probably didn't want to reference that album. Probably. I, I suspect. All right. Well, okay. I don't know. I don't okay. know. But you notice, right? So there are, the album at that moment was The Works. Mm. And the merchandising was all Queen works, right? And you see it early on in the mm. someone's shots, holding, someone's holding a, a headband mm. with Queen works in the font of the album, right? That was the merchandising. That's very. I mean, I assume this was deliberate, but it's the whole point was no Queen. Don't lose faith mm. in the idea of Queen because of what happened with Hot Space. <laughs> right? mm. Queen works. And this is, so the works was, as an album, was widely seen as a return to form. And I think that's partly why Hammer to Fall becomes an important part of not just the set, but mm. everything they're playing, because that is Queen returning to what made Queen, Queen, mm. which was rock, right? Loud guitars, all this sort of stuff. And great guitar solos and everything, right? So this is, mm. this is now Queen working, I think, which is how you end up where you do it. And that's why I think Crazy Little Thing Called Love is a strange choice. If you think about it, because Brian has to go back to acoustic guitar That's right. to start that, so it kind of it's, but it's, then switches back to electric yes, midway. But well, it, he plays two electric guitars. Yeah. Oh, does he? Try he that? plays a Telecaster and then he plays his. Oh my yes. god! Yeah. Yes, and and noteworthy, Freddie plays guitar. Yes, so that's. But you know, it, it brings it down after Hammer to Fall. It's quite a. But again, it's number two. You know, it's well known. It's we, silly as well. Yes, and we have to refer here to the MTV um, generation that they knew. 
what to do radio gaga because of mtv they knew crazy little thing called love um that video was very mm. successful as well mm. can i make one other observation about this set mm. and the thing that distinguishes it from a concept that's really important. By starting with Bohemian Rhapsody, they do something that I think is a really effective, just aesthetic thing to do. And we've seen it turn up in other art forms all the time. And that is they don't start at the beginning. Mm. They start mm. in mm. the middle. That's right. That's right. So by, by opening with the song you normally keep up your sleeve and not even playing the whole song because it, they couldn't, you can't do the opera section live, they, there's no introduction. The introduction is Queen running on stage. By the way, speaking of participation, the first thing that happens is they run on stage and Freddie just gestures the crowd and makes them shout and scream right by doing fist pumps or whatever mm. in their direction. They don't play a note mm. until Freddie sits down. Mm. But you begin in the middle. They just dunk you in it. And mm. I think here of Breaking Bad episodes, for example, which do a similar... That's more foreshadowing. You, you begin with the end, then you try to understand how you got there. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's not quite beginning with the end, mm. but it's just like we're, we're going to get rid of all the perfunctory stuff. We're not even going to say good evening <laughs> or anything like that. The, maybe there's the thing which we haven't spoken mm. about that fulfills that function, which is the comedy sketch with the police officers yeah. at the very start. I don't know. Do We've we have anything it, yes. to do with that or not? No, not to my knowledge, no. Yeah, but it's an extraordinary... What is it? We've had a complaint. Yeah. A woman is complaining that you're too loud yeah. in Belgium, in Belgium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is actually which is actually quite quite, and both are dressed as yeah. So Mel officers. Smith and Griff Rhys Jones, mm. yeah, and then they're dressed as like Bobby officers, mm. um, you know, and the older people who may not understand all the trends of modern music, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. But then what do they do? They take their helmets off and they introduce the next act, and the next act is mm. Her Majesty. Right, so it's the perfect way. And both comedians were very big on in Comedy Aid, which picked up from Live Aid from that point on. Yeah. You had large Comedy Aid concerts punctured by Pete Townsend doing Who covers, well, covering himself, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, was, it seemed very strange compared to what else happened on the day. Can I also note, too, the lack of people who, when they were on stage, actually citing the cause itself. There wasn't a lot of discussion mm. by performers on stage. Mm, that's right. David Bowie gave up his fifth song, I think it was, to show a clip from from the Cars, the song Drive, which was matched to um, shots in Ethiopia. But apart from that, um, not many performers, few at all, to my knowledge, actually acknowledge the fact of the cause itself. So this says something of the time. It comes back full circle to what we were talking about, the, the, the kind of naivety of it and the fact that it wasn't demanding anything more of the audience than that they show up and have fun. Mm. That's all their demand. If that concert were put on today, every act would make a statement or feel that they had to. And if they Mm. didn't, that would be the outlier sort of thing. Mind you, there is the big Feed the World banner that's not visible during the performance but is there Mm. above the stage. But I'd like to go back to Shane's point about work. They are physically exhausted by the end of the performance. There is nothing left on the stage. And to some extent, there's something about that that's meant to ingratiate themselves to the crowd. In some, to some extent, that's part of the erotic appeal. It's part of the seduction. Look how hard we're working for you. But I think there's also something about that that challenges a kind of passive enjoyment. Look, I'm I'm no U2 fan. I thought their, that's obvious, I thought their performances was self-aggrandizing. U2 a great band, by the way. I thought their performance at Live Aid and their performances generally was self-aggrandizing and it was a form of obedience. It was too politically heavy-handed, including the introduction of the band from Dublin. There was something about that that was so unsubtle and that was so to some extent imposing, including the fact they did two songs, one very, very, very long, doing bad. I wonder the... I hate even necessarily to say this, but is there a kind of moral significance in the work itself that Queen puts into the performance. Mm. There's something about that that defies and denies a merely passive, by enjoying this, we're doing a moral thing to do. There's something about that, I think, including uh, when coupled with the defiance at the end of the set, that it is an invitation to rise to the moment, I think. Yes, and if you compare that to someone like Bowie's performance, who Bowie's very being very good his whole career at Clean. masking or disguising the yeah, work. Yeah, He's so smooth. So Almost antiseptic. Of, yes. Yeah. Again, people say that his performances... Uh, we could parallel it with the Tina Turner Mick Jagger performance. That got 
huge plaudits at the time for the same same aesthetic reasons. They were showing themselves to be at work. Um, it was quite risque. They both lived up to their kind of stereotypes, if you like, of you know the jaggedness of Jagger and Tina Turner being Tina Turner. The I, this is where I fear we're at risk of overeating, because every Queen concert was like that. Mm. Every Queen mm. performance was like that, and. Part of what... Although the lack of pomp in this particular one is notable. But only because there's no time. But you don't have light and shade. No, because it's a set, not a mm. concert. That's right. In a concert, you, I mean, unless you want to say Bohemian Rhapsody's show. I mean, it's a very different size. I mean, it's grand, though. Just It's it's enormous because of its stature, I think, yeah. as a song. And it's a song everyone wants to sing. So mm. it and has incredible guitar solo that leads then into... Anyway, I could go, by the way, and perfect because the opera section of... Bohemian Rhapsodies in A major, which is the same key as Radio Gaga, which I am told by people who study this is the happiest key. There's an argument about that. And maybe that has something to do with the, the feel of it, the, mm. the vibe of it. But anyway, one of the things that distinguished Queen from everybody else was they, in their live performances, were creating a show as distinct from a concert. Yeah, that's right. They were no longer a band that long since had stopped being a band that got up on stage and played their songs and got off. They were creating a show. And so is there a risk of reading some kind of, I don't know, moral inflection or some kind of statement into what they just always did? Like there, are, you can read things into the differences, I suspect, but into the routines, can mm. you do that? Mm. Well, here's where I guess I'd like to claim a degree of, one of the things we promised ourselves we wouldn't do is rely on the background. Rely too yeah. much on background. It seems to me there is something about the aesthetic itself. And there were people who undoubtedly discovered Queen through this. No doubt. Yep. And what I wonder is, to what extent did, then did the aesthetics or even the phenomenology of the performance, mm. did that convey something? Emerson always had this wonderful phrase, did it convey something above the will yeah, of right. the band yeah, itself? Yeah, and that might be true. Mm. Um, the other thing we haven't touched on, we are running out of time, but the other thing we haven't touched on is power. It's a performance of power. Mm. Everything about mm. Freddie's voice is uniquely powerful. Mm. He's... Statue. There's moments where he's not moving, where he just stands and delivers. That's powerful. With the stiff leg and the stiff arm, yeah. which is really imposing. Out front. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, we're out of time, Shane, but I have to give you one last chance to make an observation about Roger Taylor's performance on the day. Did you pick anything up or notice anything as someone who's, of course, played his work? No, uh, Roger is unfairly maligned in, in drummer world as a fairly basic drummer compared to his colleagues of the day. But I can say he fits Queen's brief perfectly. Um, everything is large. The drum kit is large. Roger's flourishes are large, but he's incredibly dependable. And let's, let's face it, people, he, he's authored some of the biggest backbeats to anthems ever mm -hmm. devised. And that's part of Queen's charm, you have to say. In, wow. And some of the biggest songs, Radio Gaga's mm. his song. Mm. And I've heard Brian May talk about when he, when Roger Taylor hits the snare, he opens the hi-hat a touch and it makes it sound enormous, yes. and that's the basis of wow. Queen's enormous nice. sound. Yes. I like that. Well, gentlemen, it's been enormous. Mm -hmm. I was looking forward to this. It didn't disappoint me. Good. We'll see how both of our mums feel at the end of it, Scott. <laughs> but, um, it was great. Shane, thanks so much for being the unicorn that you were to come in and, <laughs> and do this show. It was really remarkable. Thank you. Shane Homan's Head of School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, not quite a book club or whatever it is that it's called, will return with more normal programming next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.